Welcome to Beer's Business and Balls, presented by House Enterprise and brought to you by Manscaped. Go to manscaped.com and use the code House Checkout. You get 20% off your order and free shipping. And brought to you in part by DraftKings. Massachusetts betters, the wait is over. Go to the DraftKings Sportsbook and Casino app. Download it. Enter the code BBB. You can get up to $200 in bonus bets. Well, we'll tell you about the disclaimers later on. Uh, this is episode 124, Malcolm Mitchell. Yes, the Malcolm Mitchell from the Patriots or from Georgia football. Or if you're in the New England area, the author, Malcolm Mitchell. Uh, and the the public speaker to schools and elementary, high school, whatever. One of our more interesting conversations among the three football players that we've had on the show. And I will say... We this did come up in the interview. Quentin Demps does not have a Super Bowl ring, unfortunately. With uh yes, he does. Not according to Wikipedia. With the Giants. No. I do not know if he got a ring for that. So let's let's Wait, see. Me... Giants 2014. Oh no. No. So he, he is not a Super Bowl champion. So Malcolm Mitchell. We will Super Bowl champion Malcolm Mitchell. The first, well, do you count John Duke Logan? Does John Duke Logan also have a ring? Yeah, I think he does. I think he has a ring. Dave Silverman has five rings. Yeah, actually, all right. Yeah, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Malcolm. We do, we've had a Super Bowl champion on. He just did not play the, the game of football. So, okay. The first Super actually, Bowl no, champion. False, because we did have Dan Copen on. Oh fuck! That's right. Who Sorry, is the Dan. Bowl champion with the rings. What <laughs> so, a journey that was. Four football players, second Super Bowl champion back again. That was a circle we went on. I I like it. Well, we figured this out. We did the deducting and Super Bowl wide receiver Malcolm Mitchell joins the show for one twenty four. Um, yeah, this is cool. I I. Not to say like I, I idolized Malcolm Mitchell growing up, but like you know when when we got to college, he was a very reliable wide receiver for a couple of years, and uh, he takes us through his story of making a really tough decision to retire and what he's doing afterwards. It's it's really rewarding work, um, and that was one that 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 was a really interesting one. I mean, people always associate that Falcons Patriots Super Bowl with the Edelman bobble and like Tom Brady just you know, orchestrating the comeback, but I'm pretty sure Malcolm Mitchell had like five fourth quarter receptions in that game. Yeah, he, he actually put together a couple of pretty solid years. I, I almost liken him to like the Patriots always have two or three receivers that were good, but they weren't on your radar. Like this past couple of years, it's been Tyquan Thornton that you're like, eh, it's some dude from Baylor or whatever. And then he gets some meaningful reps and he's really good. A couple of years ago, it was Christian Wilkerson, who everybody's like, who the F is this, right? And then he has a couple of really good games. He emerges as a, a, a threat down the stretch. And that was kind of the story with Malcolm Mitchell. Obviously, he could have had a much longer career. Knee issues curtailed that. Um, tough decision, too, because, again, to the naked eye, you thought he was in pretty good shape. Um, but, you know, he... He had to do what he had to do, and now he's living uh, a, a life that's fruitful for him. A lot of giving back to communities and schools, and 
thought he took us through a pretty good uh, journey of his life. Yeah, I mean, like, we obviously are familiar with him from his football accolades, but the stuff he's doing afterwards, I mean, this was this was a great interview this year uh, for this season of Beers Business and Ball. So we're excited for you to listen and learn and enjoy. But before we do that, we got to get some beers going. Got to get some beers going. Do you have anything in mind? Because I'm going. Do I recently? I recently tasted this one. I did not have the full thing. Um, not sure if you've had anything from Hanging Hills in Connecticut. Uh, this is a Hartford, Connecticut microbrewery that's rated around three point seven six on Untapped. That's just a brewery average. Um. Hanging Hills has some good stuff. Metacomet IPA is pretty good. Uh, Heartbeat is one of their better IPAs. It's spelled H-A-R-T, like Hartford. All you 860 people can laugh now. We'll pause the show. Great. Thanks for laughing along. Um, I've never been there personally, but my dad came home with a couple cans of it. There's some more in my fridge. I had Teenage Dirt Bag from Hanging Hills. It was... A fully stylized IPA meant to bring out all the best parts of your inner teenage dirtbag. And it was good. Would I drink this as a teenager? Probably not. Would I drink this as a dirtbag? Maybe I would. But uh, overall, solid IPA. Had this with dinner. There's a few IPAs that you need to have with like some food. A lot of the beers that we drink aren't those, right? They're... They're a meal in and of its own. You know, you you ranked the milkshake IPA last week, and that's one that it's a prime example of the beers we rate on this show. It's really thick, really experimental. This was no frills, no bullshit, just teenage dirtbag. I gave it a three five. Um, I would have this again, and I would like to try drinking two or three because it's a rather low percentage 6.4 it's about middle of the road for an ipa um i liked it teenage dirt back from hanging hills in Hartford, connecticut that's solid i'm just looking at that now and i'm trying to decide what i want because i'm on a little bit of a dry spell i'm not gonna lie i'm not gonna lie i did go to bayberry beer hall recently for brunch um, which always has their food their food still the same um the food's good I, I i remember it as a better option or bigger portions maybe might have just been an off day i mean it was still a very solid meal uh their beer selection is always always topped here i mean they had fox farm they had Widowmaker, they had you know I believe they had a long live on tap another trilly i'm like they 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 know what they're doing there they know the beer menu and how to orchestrate it. And I am going to do, I guess we're going into the sour category again. Grandma oh. J's Strawberry Rhubarb Pie Berliner. So it's a um, a Berliner sour ale with strawberry and rhubar- rhubarb puree, milk sugar, vanilla bean, and graham crackers. And funny enough, the flavor that stuck out to me the most on that beer was the graham car- was the graham cracker. Like it was fruity and it still had that sour kettle uh, taste to it. But I was like, before I even read the full description, I, I had it in a flight. It's like, oh, I'm tasting graham crackers in this. And I pulled it out um, and I was like, oh, 
There it is, graham crackers with vanilla bean. And it's from Weldworks Brewing Company in Greeley, Colorado. Um, which reminds me, I think we definitely need to, we gotta, I mean, we have our West Coast trip that we're in the in the talks with, but I think one day Colorado is definitely gonna have to be a stop because more and more of those places are, are uh, you know, keep popping up all over. I keep seeing Colorado breweries and the beer scene out there. People associated with weed and skiing, but craft beer is definitely Wait, which um, let me be very clear those are two very good that's like 90 percent of colorado we did skiing yeah. those are stereotypes yes but there's some truth at this point you should just come on tour of the pll because I'm, I'm going to denver in august denver is a good spot denver is a good spot uh shout out to jesse calder who's out there in fort collins colorado i don't know if jesse listens to the show but if you do, just send us a text. We'll uh, time to time. <laughs> I'll send him the link and just tell him to find his, his name. Um, rhubarb is an interesting flavor to me. I don't. Did you find it sweet or bitter? I mean, rhubarb is technically, technically more bitter, but the strawberries balanced it out. Yeah. But See, again, like Bayberry, like they're very hoppy ipa hazy ipa centric forward and they do offer some stuff from time to time and i believe i got what did i have for br brunch that day i think i got like french toast so yeah was, see that's i was just about to say that's good for like waffles and pancakes and french toast like if you get a little fruit on that maybe a little strawberry syrup or something it's a very good pairing yeah so i think it was like picked the beer with the food type of thing. Um, and it did not disappoint. So I don't think I actually gave it a score. I think on untapped, they gave it a four out of five because I am a sucker with the food pairings and I'm a sucker for the sours. But it was good. It was good. Take it. I might I might try that. I'm, as, I'm not as much of a sour guy as you are, but... But there is a time and place. I like the the mild ones. Uh, and shout out area two in in Connecticut, the two roads well, experimental. It's it's definitely getting to the point though where it's like, I wouldn't say I'm like the biggest sour person, but I appreciate it more because I've never found similarities between sours, fruited beers, um, you know, those styles of craft beers. Where it's coming to the point now where, you know. I used to say you can you can put a blindfold on me and I can tell you the differences between beers. It's getting to the point where there's too many similarities. I would, you know, especially in Rhode Island, like I think I I know I could still pick Long Live clearly out there, but the rest of the hazy IPAs and the New England IPAs that are being created, you know, there's not much differential because like yeah. everyone's just using the same seven hops. Yes. It, yeah. It's a very good point. You can't really pick out IPAs anymore. And you can pick out the tree houses. You can pick out most of the stuff Long Live does. I can't tell you if you blind, and actually that would be a fun experiment if we blind tested um, like top tier IPAs, what we come back with. Because I don't know that I'd be able to pass that test. I don't think so. I, 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 no, 
No, I think it's just like, and that's not a knock on anybody. I think it's just like the styles are all kind of blending in together and, and people's, um, you know, craft making abilities are not as divided anymore. Like there's like, it's a very much even playing field of beer making in New England. Yeah. Yeah. The, the gap's closing, I think. I don't know. Maybe it's not this. <laughs> I don't know what to think anymore. Um, I'm going to try that rhubarb. Let's see if I can get it. I'm not a rhubarb person, but it sounds very good. So, so some two good beer selections this week uh, to, to briefly touch on business. Cause Malcolm talks about sort of the nonprofit work he's been into. That'll, that'll go into the business segment. We talked about this last week. Jeff Bezos is no longer in on the commander sale though. Um, I don't think it was attributed to a high price tag. I just think he doesn't want to do it. And it came down to that. So could be that could be there's some dirt on Jeff Bezos that doesn't need to be addressed because I feel like everything with this Washington situation, everyone's dirty laundry keeps coming out. Um, it could be the someone approached him saying there's too many conflicts of interest with amazon even though he's not necessarily the shot caller anymore it could just be like why am i spending this money to say f you to whoever because like he's not like stevie cohen who grew up a mets fan and was like i want to make this my monopoly board game and every time someone in the league passes go i'm signing a new free agent star um this would just surely just to be because I have money and I can do it type of move. Oh, yeah. You know who is the leading uh, front runner now is uh, Harris Blitzer, the company that owns the Sixers. And I'm pretty sure it's the Devils. It's one of those two. Michael Michael Rubin and Fanatics is out on the Sixers. I don't know. I... It it seems like HBSE is the the front runner, but I think this is still wide open from a sale. That's what it looks like. Interesting. So we'll see. Um, in other news, Tupperware might go out of business. No. Yeah. This Earl is a live reaction. We did not. Earl Tupper would not. Him. Earl Tupper would roll over in his grave. No, food, uh, this is NBC News. Legendary food storage brand Tupperware has hired advisors to help turn around the company after notifying securities regulators that it may have to close up. Uh, they were seeking to improve capital to, quote unquote, remediate its doubts regarding its ability to continue as a going concern. That's not good. They're about to go bankrupt. Well, I guess there's so many like phony Tupperwares now. And I think the big thing is also you got glass Tupperware. Um, well, if you can even call it Tupperware, I don't know. I don't even know. That's uh that's what is it? Plexiglass, right? Plexiglass. So I don't no, know. No, it's uh it's no, it's not plexiglass, it's uh Pyrex. That's Pyrex. what it is. So you have that, and then you have all of like the meal preppers with like the black boxes. But again, you would just think that they would just create that. Everybody's making stuff like stop and shops making their own brand and whatnot. I mean, Tupperware lost $29 million last quarter. 
which you would think they would have like the patent for royalties. I don't get it. They it's a billion dollars in quarterly global sales. So they're four billion dollar global company, but they're in the red. Their operating costs are too high. Damn. And this hit this hits home for us because shout out Bryant University. The uh campus on Smithfield was donated by Bryant College alumni Earl Tupper, who invented Tupperware. Hence the name Tupper the Bulldog. The more you know. Hope That's you learned. Where, like, Brian needs to come in and just be like, okay, here's your business project, freshman uh, GFOB class. Go, <laughs> save go, Tupperware. Yeah, save Tupperware. Or like the idea program. Like go go figure out what's wrong with Tupper Tupperware's bottom line and fix it because you know we we cannot have this travesty. I'll save them the project. It's stop spending money. I mean, when's the last time like anyone like Tupperware is one of those things where you buy and you're like oh yeah like when it gets grungy I can always just like get rid of it but then you have you end up collecting so much Tupperware you just you don't know what to do with it I yeah I feel that I have so much Tupperware people come over and they're just like oh yeah like I brought food for the game or food for this and then no one ever asks for their Tupperware back unless it's glass (laughs) I have three things at the moment from Easter that were given to me from my family. It was pasta and two desserts. And they are currently sitting in Tupperware that are now going to go in my pantry forever because my family has too much of them. My mom always pawns it off. And I'm like, yeah, I'll bring it back. She's like, no, please don't. Like <laughs> That and the reusable shopping bags. Yeah. And I, I can never find them when I need them. Well, the shopping bags, yes, but maybe we've just cracked the code on why Tupperware is going under because everybody buys too much of it and nobody's, they're just all getting passed around. Nobody's buying new Tupperware, just using old Tupperware. Huh. You know, I think we just solved it. I mean, that was a whole point. campaign for Tupperware to stop, to get people to stop leaving them at other people's house. We have to ask ChatGPT for that. Yeah, which is just scary. But <laughs> we'll ask them. To open AI is another. We're not doing the AI talk today. No, I we 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 agreed we're not doing it. We're, we're going to push it off like the quarterback conversation. Yes, we will do it at the very last minute before AI takes us over, and then we'll do it. And then we'll do Watch it. Out. Might be soon. Um. Yeah, it's a, it's a little fun business story. Tupperware is going to fucking sink. That really sucks. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight thinking about that. That's a tough beat. That is a tough beat. Well, that's it for business. Uh, let's go into something much lighter and much more fun. Uh, our conversation with Super Bowl champion Malcolm Mitchell uh, played for the Patriots for a while. Um, and now is doing some really cool stuff with his nonprofit, uh, the Share the Magic Foundation, inspiring kids to read. Really good discussion on Malcolm's upbringing and and how he, quite honestly, turned his life around. Um, so let's bring in Malcolm Mitchell. Here he is. All right, everybody. With us this week, we're joined by Super Bowl champion, author, speaker, Malcolm Mitchell. Malcolm Mitchell joins the podcast thanks to John Duke Logan, and we are so happy to have you on talk about you know 
what you're up to, what you're working on, and of course to uh, you know just recap your career as a whole. So, Malcolm, welcome, welcome to the podcast, and uh, how's it been going? Man, I'm happy to be here. This is pretty cool. I'm excited to have this conversation and see and see what adventure it takes us on. Uh, everything's going well. I'm living in Atlanta, Georgia, and I have retired from sports. So I focus on three things primarily. My nonprofit, Share the Magic Foundation. I do write books for Scholastic Publishing House, but I also do some writing on the side. And I am a public speaker. So I travel around the country talking about the importance of literacy in under-resourced communities. So it's a lot different than chasing balls around on the field. <laughs> They're running away from 300-pound uh, men trying to tackle me. But I enjoy it, and it's a lot of fun. A little bit of a safer career, I'd say. It's much safer. I don't run into uh, many people who are trying to run into me. <laughs> so, Will, is this uh, is this NFL player number three or four? Because Marcus Ogden, Quentin Demps, and and Malcolm, number three, number three. Congrats! You're you're the third NFL player to make an appearance on this show. I, I appreciate it. Any of those other guys win a Super Bowl? Quinn and Demps. Demps definitely won one. I was looking yeah. for a competitive advantage. <laughs> That's all right. So let's let's start with the young Malcolm Mitchell. So, you know, you're obviously a Georgia native. You're back in Atlanta, and you attended the University of Georgia. We're Bulldogs from Bryant, Bulldogs from Georgia. I'll, I'll take the comparison there. But um, before attending school there, was your goal always to be a professional football player, or did you have other interests in mind? Honestly, I did not know the concept of being a professional athlete. I think as a kid, you hear people always glorifying it. And, you know, in Valdosta, football reigned supreme. I always said the pecking order for priorities was football, faith, then family, instead of faith, family, and football. And I was just like every other child in that community. I gravitated towards playing sport. I did not fully understand the path it could take me out on life. I didn't understand the platform opportunities it would present. It's just something that I really enjoyed doing with friends. And as I got older and older and began to see people have those experiences, whether it was going to a university or being drafted and playing in the NFL, that's when it became an ambition of mine. Once I saw tangible evidence that it was a real option. So it wasn't until I got to college that the idea of being a professional athlete really set in and it's something that I was striving to accomplish. Before that time, I think I was just growing up that youthful, rebellious kid who liked to hit people, catch passes and have a good time with friends. I, I really believe it was that simple as related to my thought process. And that evolved over time, of course. So. You grew up in Valdosta, Georgia, right? Like, you know, yeah. this is this is your – you're a Georgia guy, and you get right. to put on the Georgia uniform to play college football. I mean, what did that mean to you? Were you a Georgia fan growing up? Like, was that something as, as your football journey started to accelerate, you maybe thought, like, wow, I'd love to wear the Georgia uniform, play for Mark Richt, like all that stuff? Or, or, you know, how did that process go that you ended up at Georgia, and how special was that for you that, that you did get to rep your home state? I'm a bit embarrassed to say that um, I did not watch a drop of football growing up. So <laughs> I was into, 
and this probably explains why I became a picture book author. I was into <laughs> cartoons and anime, Dragon Ball Z and SpongeBob SquarePants. And you know, I was fascinated with art and, and things like that. I just happened to go outside one day and, you know, be a decent athlete. The truth is, growing up, the first sport I participated in was karate. Now, most people don't consider that a sport, but it takes a lot of athleticism to pull off some of those moves. I had an older, or I have an older brother. His name is Marquise Mitchell. He's one year older than I. And he played football, and he was extraordinary, right? I mean, he was so good that they made him bring his birth certificate to every football game because they could not believe he was that age performing that well. Now, I didn't have such a lucky start. All mine came from, you know, hard work and waking up early and staying up late. But after watching my brother and seeing how people gravitated towards him playing football, and I mean, nobody. Maybe my mother and my mother only attended my my karate matches. I decided that the next year I would go out and play. So they tell you jealousy doesn't pay off, but in this situation, it actually took me a very long way. Isn't that crazy? Like how how most people, it's sort of backwards, right? They like grew up saying, "I want to be a football player. Like I want to go be a professional athlete," and then they ended up in the stuff right. like you know they're that they that they didn't think they'd end up doing. Right. It's almost backwards for you. You're like, yeah, I'm watching all these cartoons, and then oh, I'm accidentally a Division one football player, and now I'm playing for the Patriots. Now I will I will say that I love the game of football, and I and I love everything about it. So once I began to play, uh, you know, a different sense of um, accountability, love, and respect for the game began to form and take place. So I practiced hard. I worked hard. I went to weightlifting. Anytime we did uh, conditioning work, I was always running the hardest I could run. So it wasn't an accident of how I got there, but I did not choose to go down that path. In some ways, I believe God just led me there through divine intervention and some other things. And when did you know in your career, you know, while at Georgia that, all right, the NFL is actually in play for me? Oh, I, pro- I knew after my freshman year um, because the game, I think it was me being able to transition from the way I played in high school into me being able to easily transition into college because I started as a a true freshman. And I figured that at that point, okay, then I have a skill set to compete. And I knew how determined I was. So I was plagued by injuries along the way. But I think after my freshman year, I knew I had an ability to go on and continue to play for a while if I wanted to. Yeah, that I'm was fair talents too, right? Because if I'm a freshman being able to play, and the guy that was standing beside me gets drafted, and I know I'm better than him, well, then I'm just making the assumption that, oh, I must too be must be presented with an opportunity like that. Yeah, I mean, not too shabby of a freshman year. Um, let's, uh, freshman All-SEC at uh, 126 yards over Tennessee, uh, and then uh, ended up getting 45 grabs for 665 yards. It's a, it's a pretty impressive freshman year for sure, and a, a loaded SEC. Um, the rest of the time at Georgia, any teammates that stand out? I mean, you, you had some really high-quality talent um, 
you know, that's was surrounded with you at Georgia, but anybody that maybe you got really close with, that's, uh, you know, having a long career in the NFL now or, yeah. or any, any good memories from, uh, you know, I, I guess off that, what's your favorite memory from Georgia too? Yeah, man. A lot of those guys have become my lifelong friends. I can name a bunch of them. Damian Swan, Marlo Carrera, Todd Gurley, Keith Marshall, um, Jonathan Brown, Josh Dawson. I mean, the list goes on. Uh, Kennard Johnson, Sheldon Dawson. I mean, you form relationships with all of those people, especially the class you were drafted. I mean, not drafted, but recruited into. So the bonds last much deeper than the ones you create in the NFL because I guess you're still kids at in college just playing for the love of the game with some financial and uh, other ambitions. Um the guy who stands out to me the most, and I still consider him the top three football players I've ever seen, is Todd Gurley. Uh, and I think what made him so astounding was Todd would not feel like being great, and he would still be great. <laughs> he would wake up and he'd verbally announce that he was not in a great mood and it didn't feel like playing that day. And then he'd go out there, rush for 250 yards, and have three touchdowns. So he had a different switch and a different gear that allowed him to perform at a level that you know, the other two is Rob Gronkowski and uh, obviously Tom Brady, you know, but if I'm naming the top three players I have ever played with, you know, those three are the top three. Um, and obviously there are other extraordinary talents out there, but for me, that I witnessed those three with my own eyes. <laughs> and that's a perfect transition to obviously you landed on the Patriots right after uh, your college career, fourth round draft pick. Uh, was there ever a moment that, you know, were, were the Patriots all on you in the beginning? Like, did you hear some rumblings of some other teams, or was it was it New England and that that was your next home? Well, New England took the most thorough approach to the process. I remember when they came in, uh, I think it was right before Pro Day, and we sat down and we had a visit. Um, I think it was Nick Casario at the time. Um, and we went through plays, and he was asking me what I was thinking, uh, what was the quarterback's progression, what was the offensive line responsibilities. And I was able to answer the questions fairly well until he got to the offensive line, and then I was a bit confused. But just seeking out what was best for the overall team was something that they did. Something else that they did that I'm not sure was quite legal, but we took our top 30 visits, and the top 30 visit is basically any teams who are interested in you have an opportunity to bring you out before the draft day, right? And you can only – matter of fact, it may not be 30. I think you can only go to about five or six of them. I forget the number. Uh, but the Patriots call me up, and as soon as we get there, they take me in the meeting room with three other receivers. You know, they call it a coincidence, but I think they were just stacking us side by side, seeing who could perform the best under pressure. And they did a whole day one install of training camp. They put it up, they talked to us about it, then they walked away and they said, You have 10 minutes to study it. So I'm thinking, okay, after 10 minutes, we'll just take the little quiz or whatever they're going to give us, and we're good. No. After the 10 minutes, he comes in and says, okay, now go to lunch. Now, I was familiar with this tactic because all he was trying to do was get us to forget everything that we just learned. Immediately after lunch, we go upstairs and we do a walkthrough where we're, re where we're um, basically walking through all the plays that they installed. And out of the three or four people that were there, I was the only one that remembered all three positions. Now, the way I was able to do that, I call it coding, 
instead of remembering the routes, I just associated them with a phrase. So all I had to do was remember the phrase. And that would tell me what everyone had to do. Um, and after I felt like I aced that test, I knew that I had an opportunity to go to that team. Another team that was very interested was the Falcons. Because uh, they actually worked, they actually uh, had me work out as a defensive back as well uh, on pro day. So I figured it would be one of those two. I was hoping to go in the top three rounds, but end up dropping to the fourth, which is okay. So we've had, obviously that led to a, a pretty fruitful couple of years with the Patriots, all things considered. Yeah. I mean, we've had, we've had Olympic medals on the show. We've had championship trophies. We've had a bunch of accolades. So we, and we ask every single person who's had one of these, where, where do you keep your ring? Do you keep it like close by or is it, is it stashed Honestly, away? Somewhere? You usually just put it in a safe. Yeah. Right? Or you put it in like a, you know, you have um, deposit box at banks. It's probably, it's the safest place to put it in my opinion. So, so we'll cross out the next part of, can you show us then? But <laughs> <laughs> if you had it accessible, we were going to ask I would. You. I may have an AFC championship running around here. Now I Casual. I'm a bit more loose about that one, but um, I mean they're all insured anyway. So, yeah. so narrative um, nation though, you you ended up playing a Super Bowl against that hometown team. Yeah, but I wasn't a fan anyway, so I didn't. Matter. Yeah, <laughs> you know, ironically, I am a fan today. I am a fan of the of the Patriots for obvious reasons, and I watch the Falcons game every time that they play. I mean, living in the city, you almost don't have many options. And I didn't grow up in Atlanta. So my affection for the teams was, was non-existent. So, but now I live here and kind of drenched in the Atlanta culture. You know, you, you become enthralled by going to the games and watching them play and following the team. So I am a fan of the Falcons now. And I want to talk about the the run to the Super Bowl, right? I mean, obviously, yeah. you came in, you made your debut 2016. Um, you know, you emerge as, as, a, as an option, right? Like a reliable option for this wide receiver core. And then, you know, all of a sudden, everybody knows what ended up uh, happening that year. You know, it's a, it's a meme now. It's on flags all over college campuses, right? Patriots yeah. win in overtime. They eclipse the 28-3 to win. I mean – Obviously, you guys knew you could win the game, right? There was no question about that, that the that the mood was, we're going to win this Super Bowl. But when did you think? I'm not sure. You don't think so? Interesting. Um, to say that we knew we were going to win is a bit. Well, maybe not that you were going to win, but that you, were, that you weren't out necessarily. Oh, now we all, we believe that the whole time. Yeah. That much is true. We believe that the entire time that we were playing the game, that we were not out of the game. And another thing that we believed also, we were adamant about not giving up. So regardless of how the game was progressing over time, laying down and quitting was not an option. So I think Bill did a great job of, of preparing us for those moments. I remember leading up to the game, he said the Super Bowl is two games. It's before halftime and after halftime. And the way you perform after halftime is going to determine the outcome. I think we kind of took that approach. So we walked into the locker room, not devastated, but trying to figure out, okay, what do we need to do to turn this thing around? But knowing we were going to win is a stretch. We knew we were not going to quit. Right. You know. 
And then to zoom out to like from uh, when did you know that this team could go all the way to the Super Bowl? Was that oh, was that a goal Lewis that Tom, you? Lewis Tom came back that year. He missed the first four games. I mean, the first game he came back. I think we were in Cleveland, and I said, "Whoa!" <laughs> I had played with them. I mean, I had practiced with them the entire off season and in training camp, so I knew his ability, right? And you know, I. I I knew who he was. I knew his track record. But when he stepped in the games, it was like this is something I've never seen before. He's one of the most competitive individuals I've ever, I've ever met. And he knew how to rally his guys behind him in a way that we were just as committed as he was. He was the fearless leader that I think every corporation wants, every team wants. I, every fam, well, maybe I don't know about the family thing, you know, but I definitely know he is the leader that everybody wants on their team, regardless of what their team is focused on accomplishing. And before we talk about the next part of your career, you know, speaking of guys like Brady, you mentioned Gronkowski, obviously, Coach Bill, Bill Belichick. Were there any takeaways or lessons that you learned from guys like that or people you played with that? helped you in this next stage of your if of your of your life and career yeah bill belichick was you know i grew up without a father at home uh, for majority of my childhood and i think bill belichick was that father figure that implemented accountability and responsibility on a level that i had never witnessed before uh, I, I i took those things with me even the approach to you know accomplishing goals or accomplishing objectives so yeah he out of all of those experiences and all the players I played with, the things that he taught and the way that he led the team is something that I ponder on today and I try to implement within my organization. And then, of course, you know, the decision to retire from football, you had the knee injuries. Um, when you made that decision, was it a blind decision of like, OK, my body's telling me I'm done and I need to figure out my next steps? Or did you have something in mind? You know, for example, obviously your, you know, your writing career and your public speaking that you're like, okay, I know that I can fall into this next step and let's, let's go hundred percent with this. Retiring is one of the toughest things I've ever done. Before the decision, during the decision, and um, even afterwards, it was, it was brutal. Because the way the lens in which you see the world has to shift drastically. And because you've accomplished those things, great. But you know that you no longer it's you're no longer doing those things, right? That's not gonna determine your next step in life. So coming to terms with that was difficult. Uh, I did not make that decision lightly, and it was due to my body. I, you know, um, I think there are still some physical components that I can still, I was still going to be able to catch, right? But the day in and day out grind that it, it took to get on that field every weekend to play, that is what I could no longer do because of the injuries that I sustained um, throughout my career. Um, and I had no idea what I would do. You know, I never, never thought that, you know, being a nonprofit leader or, you know, growing up, that's not cool. That's not sexy. I mean, you know, you don't say that. I mean, how many kids have you 
met in first grade, you asked him, what do you want to be? And they grow up, they say a nonprofit leader. I don't, I've never heard that. And I go to thousands of schools, you know? So it, it was more so about growing up and seeing the world from a different perspective because I wasn't a kid playing this game anymore and really trying to find some financial dependency and other things and developing new skills. Um, I think God planted these seeds and he nurtured them subconsciously as I was progressing in life. So yes, I did at some point turn to the things that I had been doing off the field. But when I made that choice, I was not thinking about those things um, leading me down the path of life that I, I'm at now, if that makes any sense. And plus, yeah. is too, it's too, football is the most, American football is the most popular televised show form of entertainment in the country. So you tell me something else I can do that compares to that. Right. And it, it makes perfect sense. Right. And I, I think that's a really good segue and it, it's a real powerful transition to that next part of your life. Right. So you, yeah. Malcolm, you struggled with reading, um, you know, at a young age and even into college. So I think it says a lot about you that you overcame that and then went on to literally become a writer and an author yeah. and a public speaker. Right. So, so what were, uh, if you're comfortable sharing, of course, what were some of those difficulties like when, you know, you, you did struggle with reading and how did you work to overcome that and eventually find out like, all right, I, I, can do this, you know, to the level I want to, and I, I can use this to, to sort of gain the skill to, to get where I want to be in that next step. Yeah, it was a bit embarrassing. And it's not like anyone knew. I mean, I knew, right. Um, and my mom always encouraged me to exercise uh, every aspect of myself and be the best me holistically. And she taught me at a very young age, being the best athlete you can be and being the best person you can be are two different things. So I grew up understanding those principles. And once I got to college, I was thrust into a different environment where I saw students value their education. They were able to make the connection between academic performance and economic opportunities of real sustainability, right? And I think based on the culture that I grew up in, the ideal of money was you know, you make a lot of it and you spend a lot of it, right? But once I got to the University of Georgia, there are other principles that began to seep in. And I realized that if I wanted to have any sustainable success in life, if I wanted to maximize my potential as a human being, I needed to be a reader. That way, every piece of information was a tool that I could use to help me make the next decision in life. And without that, it's really hard to be a fully functional citizen in society. Um, and some of the challenges that kind of set, set my radar off was uh, closed captions. I was having a hard time reading closed captions, and I had to keep pausing the movie for an extended amount of time trying to figure out what was going on. Grocery shopping. I was picking up the wrong items in the grocery store. Or any time that uh, there was an opportunity to read aloud in, in class, man, I'd be paralyzed with fear. I'd start sweating instantaneously. And those were the cues that I used to, to kind of help me understand that I needed to take a different approach. And it was tough because in some cases it was hard to justify because while I'm walking around feeling less than because I'm having a hard time reading Edgar Allan Poe, the, the professors are asking to take photos with me. 
right? So trying to, to, to find value in education and um, emotional intelligence while having this, this, this ability on the field that captured so many people's attention, it's like, well, why do I need, why should I read? I get to date any person I want. I get to go anywhere I want and eat for free, probably. Tell me why I need to read. And until I was able to answer that question for myself, I didn't engage in the activity. But once I engaged in the activity, even in college, I realized that it was more powerful than playing sports. And what was that moment that made you say, hey, you know, I need to make this this effort into my life. And then were there any books, authors, people that helped you along the way that really jump kicked that inspiration? Yeah, I joined a book club um, and it was actually aired on CBS Morning News uh, because I was the only male, the only one in my generation, the only one in my ethnic background in the book club. Um, And those women really helped me find a love for reading outside of my initial interpretation of what it meant to be a reader. Um, it was called Silverleaf Book Club. I'll never forget them. Some of them are on the board of my foundation at this very moment. Uh, and one I actually named in one of the picture books that I wrote. Uh, they played an incremental role in me, um, in me becoming the, the reader that I have become. Some of the books that encouraged me was The Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls, uh, the Harry Potter series. Um, there are books written by, I think, Malcolm X by Autobiography was one that really encouraged me because he was a person who started with a rough background. But through education and learning while he was incarcerated, he came out a transformed individual. And, you know, all the stories that I read give me a, a bit of greater perspective on life, give me a bit of greater perspective on people and their circumstances help me build empathy and look at the world holistically outside of my isolated experiences. And I, I cherish those things because it made me a more well-rounded individual. And I would take that over, you know, playing 10 years in the, in the NFL. Um, not because the NFL is not worth it. That's not what I'm trying to communicate. It is worth it. In fact, I would say that played a huge role in you wanting me on this podcast, <laughs> you know? So I'm not devaluing the importance of football in my life. But what I am trying to communicate is that there are things out there greater and more powerful than the ideal of being a professional athlete. I would say do them both. Don't do one and not do the other. Right yeah. on, absolutely. It, it makes perfect sense. Um, and, and you uh, were talking about authors and stuff. You became one, right? Um, <laughs> you you wrote a book, The Magician's Hat, that you've uh, you've now you know showcased to children and and schools across the nation, and even while you were with the Patriots as well. This was something that came up too. Um, first of all, we've got to ask the premise behind the book, and and what's how did you get into this world of magic as well? Like you know, what was your what was your connection or, or maybe admiration for, for that to, to maybe say, all right, that's the first book I'm going to write. Once reading started having an impact on the way I thought, uh, the way I analyzed information, uh, 
the way I thought critically about situations, I thought it was very important for me to share it with people in a culturally relevant way that would help them embrace it so uh, they can unlock the potential of their lives. So I had this crazy idea one day. I said, I'm going to write a picture book <laughs> because I actually use picture books to help me build my vocabulary and learn sentence structure, structure and you know, punctuation. So uh, I wanted to do for others what books had done for me, and that was to inspire, expose and hopefully uh, educate. Um, so while I was in college, I authored The Magician's Hat as a means to inspire kids to read. I'm thankful today that my foundation has distributed over 60,000 books to communities across the nation, not just The Magician's Hat, but the other book I wrote, which is my very favorite book in the whole wide world. That's the title. Um, and we've impacted over 600,000 young lives. That includes at least one classroom in every state and seven other countries. So me becoming an author was my attempt to, one, model the importance of being literate, but two, hopefully create content in a meaningful way that engaged communities. That's beautiful. That's, yeah. And I mean, the book obviously then parlayed into your foundation, the magic, the, exactly. uh, the magic foundation. Exactly. We got the magic theme that it's still here and you're inspiring kids to read. Um, so describe that purpose. You mentioned obviously in the impact that it's done, but you know, what are some of the efforts that you have worked on over the past couple of years to build this foundation to where it is today? Yeah, I take in a lot of my personal experience with education and some of the things that I would have hoped for along my journey. So I created uh, in-school programs, and we usually use those as models to introduce book ownership into the lives of students. Most people don't know in under-resourced communities, one in every 300 students have age-appropriate books at home. So you can yell, read and be literate or why aren't you educated? But if children don't have materials at home to continue to foster that growth outside of school, well, you see a decline over time. We also created uh, virtual reading challenges, which is a platform for educators to engage their students in literacy based activities. Simply said, what I did was I took the aspect of sport and reading and I combined them to create uh, incentivize reading challenges for teachers to use in their classroom. And in those, we've had over 500,000 students participate since 2016. And those are a lot of fun there. And they definitely help um, teachers engage their students as curriculum enhancers. Uh, we also have a lot of partnerships where we partner with local uh, national or international organizations to bring some of the resources that we curate and house to communities. This past year, 2022, I was appointed to the House Study Committee for my work uh, in the community in Georgia, where we studied literacy-based practices to see which was most effective and impactful. Honestly, I think the only reason I'm here able to have a coherent conversation with all of you, and hopefully in a way that it makes sense, is because of my love for reading. It, it just exposed me to so many different perspectives and so different, so many different avenues of life that you kind of look in the mirror and you say, I, you can be literally whatever you want to be like magic. And it sounds silly and it sounds very childish, but based on my experience, it's real. And 
you mentioned a couple of awards you received, right? You, and you've received a lot of them. Let's be very clear, right? You got the key to the city from your hometown. You got a Promise Hero Award from Colin Powell. Uh, you were a children's author of the year. You have a TEDx talk. It goes on and on. But there's got to be a more rewarding piece for you, right? I'm sure there's something that sticks out. Like, what's the most rewarding part for you personally of all of this work? Man, I've never thought about it. Um, <laughs> right, because there, there's so much of, I don't know, you seem like a guy that, you know, you'd say, you know, hey, all the awards are nice, but like the fact that, you know, I mean, look at the impact you've made for all these uh, 600,000 students, right? Like what's the most rewarding part about that figure to you that you were able to to help all these kids and continue to do so? I think it's hard for me to think in terms of, you know, what do I appreciate most? Because that's not my natural. That, I don't know. I want to answer the question with, you know, an easy answer just to say something. But I think. I don't know. Maybe I don't have the, the intellectual capacity to think that far out. Right. What is 600,000 students? How do you how do you visualize that in a way you can appreciate it, right? Do you, do you think of about six hundred thousand kids on an island? You, you know, you say, "Oh, that's cool." I, you know, I just here's what I I just want to do the best that I can with the information that I have to inspire, encourage, and um, get people attempting to be their best, right? My, my my mom did that was better than. Anything else she could have done for me is she she gave me the ability to have hope. And I think the world could use a lot of that. And not that I'm the world savior or anything like that. But if I can give, you know, those students hope, if I can inspire them to to, you know, to run an extra lap, to read an extra book, to try to be their absolute best, then I'll do whatever it takes to do that based off the information that I have. And the information that I have right now tells me that reading is the most self-empowering tool a person could possess. You tell me something else. In fact, the most influential book ever written, you got to read it, right? The only person that's ever gotten close to outselling the Bible is Harry Potter. And you can watch the movies, but you still can't fully internalize the concepts unless you can read it. And I'm not telling people to go out and read the dictionary. I read picture books. In fact, I can show you. I have like 10 right here beside me, right? This is what I read. I'm not reading, you know, thousand-page books every day or anything like that. You know, I enjoy stories. I enjoy um, historical fiction and fiction, and it teaches me things. But just having the ability to, to dissect text internalize it and apply it to your life in a way that helps you move in the direction that you want. I mean, that's a skill that can't be replaced by anything else. You can't buy that. You have to, you got to do the work yourself. Now your focus has been primarily on the children's side. Have you ever thought, you know, being a young adult that realized that you were making the change that I need to also focus my efforts onto young adults as well, or is that just something part of the, the bigger the bigger picture of you know share the magic foundation I, we moved into the middle and high school space last year and where i start engaging with those students a bit more and uh, i actually write trying to write a middle middle eight um middle grade book now 
for students to hopefully create some content that they may be interested in. Um, I think beyond high school, I may have a bit of imposter syndrome when I think about that, you know, because it's, I mean, in some ways I still feel like a, a, I'm not, I'm not a child by any means, but, you know, I've been out of football for a few years now and uh, there's been a huge learning curve that I'm still going through, Um, you know, but if anybody ever wants to have a conversation with me or or talk uh, on a small scale, I'm always open and willing to do that as long as time permits. And I'll share any information that I have. You know, if you have the right question, I'll give you I'll give you the whole answer to the best of my ability. And that I mean, that is extended to anyone. So. Love that. Love that. And we got to ask, because obviously we got connected from our friend John Duke Logan. Yeah, man. So he was doing magic in the locker room way back when. Is that how you guys met and decided to? So John Duke Logan was, he worked in the media department, but he doubled as the team magician. And he would put on shows after practice. And one time I was invited to do a show with him. And he did this ridiculous Dorito trick that I still hadn't figured out. Somehow he got a card in the bag. And that sounds like John. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, anyway. My foundation had had already began. We started the foundation before I was drafted to the Patriots. So we already had these programs in place. And one of the programs was called a reading rally, which is basically a pep rally for reading. And I bring in a magician to perform some tricks for the students to kind of follow the magical theme of, of reading, right? And the title of the book was The Magician's Hat. So it all synced up pretty well. Well, I had a magician go roll on. If you never worked with a magician before, <laughs> don't get in the business. <laughs> Made himself disappear. That's not good. I mean, uh, they they have their idiot secrets. He's like every other person. It's just intensified. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to John, and um, I said, "Listen, man, I could really use your help. I have a program where we focus on the importance of reading." We usually use a magician. He says, well, I've never done tricks for students and and children. And I said, buddy, you will figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) And from that day, I've used him for every program that I've done. And I I believe him and I have done over 60 at this point. That's awesome. I mean, it's so funny he says that because he's, you know, doing magic tricks to you, like Eric Blonde, Grau, uh, Grau, yeah. Brady, and he's like, I don't know, kids? Like, <laughs> Exactly. He, was, he really said, I got to think about that, man. I don't, I don't have tricks for kids. And I was like, buddy, just come up with something. <laughs> this is, don't forget, this is the same guy that was doing him at the bar when we went to school with him. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> come on. And by the way, before I got – I'm married now. But before I got married, I used to take him out with me. And I would say that was my party trick. They said, Malcolm, what you got? I got a magician with me. <laughs> that's a pretty that's a pretty solid wingman, not gonna lie. Just oh, my goodness, magician on retainer. Listen, he'll never let you down. <laughs> you just you just give him some tequila and he'll do it. 
That's a spirit. I like that. Yeah. I remember the first time John did a, a magic trick. It was at the Thirsty Beaver Will at Rhode Island. And that was like the first time I'd really ever seen it. And to, to Malcolm's point, you know, a couple of tequilas, you, you're sort of every, the reactions get a little like, whoa, oh my God. And I, my jaw dropped. My jaw actually dropped. I'm like, I don't, I can't fathom how you do this, right? It's incredible. I've seen him pull off some tricks in some late nights, and I'm like, buddy, I don't even know how you're functioning. (laughs) Get along doing sleight of hand. That's the magic, baby. That is the magic. But he's he's a great guy. I love everything about him. He's been a true blessing and gift to, you know, my foundation, to my life, period. Um. Like I say, we take these week-long trips where sometimes we're spending a week together in Louisiana or um, all over the place, California, you name it. And um, it's given me opportunity to get to know him and what he stands for. And he's just as invested in this mission as I am. Um, And, you know, he loves working with those students and he loves being an inspiration for them. And, you know, most people would assume that because I have the, you know, the Super Bowl Um, title that um, I have the biggest impact. Well, no, because kids usually don't can't quantify that and don't care. Right. They care why you're there. Why are you here and what are you doing? And when John takes that stage and motivates those students through his um, his magic, it, it truly is magical to see. I encourage both of you to come check it one out with us so you can get an experience of you know, what he does for communities. 100%. And as your foundation grows, uh, this recently came about that you have a new partnership with Cox. That's right. So I'd love to hear more about that, what that entails, yeah. and, uh, you know, how did this all come to play? Yeah, I think as my, my platform begins to grow outside of football, that I've been able to be one of the voices out of the community, hopefully, you know, inspiring and infusing that hope into the lives of people through, you know, information that I gained from the world that I live in today. I formed a partnership with Cox a couple of years ago. I became their digital equity spokesperson to talk about the importance of having internet access in low-income communities. I think COVID sped up the process of, processes of, of us seeing the internet, not as a luxury, but a necessity, especially as it becomes more embedded in our educational systems. So um, they, I signed on to do that again this year, and hopefully uh, we are able to, to encourage some funding in particular era, areas so those students can engage with the Internet in a meaningful way. You think about exposure being the name of the game. I say people are made up of three things. Their DNA, usually can't change that. Um, your environment. That's sometimes hard to change depending on your uh, financial capacity and then your experiences. And let's use experience and exposure the same, right? I am exposed to more based on my ability to read because while I may be physical in one spot because I can read different material, I'm exposed to things outside of my community that gives me a greater scope of understanding. Well, think about the Internet being that same method of exposure if it's used strategically. Instead of asking it to to find a local coffee shop, you you know, you ask the question, like, how do you self-publish a book? And it will tell you the answer. And all you have to do is create a checklist 
and follow each step and eventually you'll get where you want to be. So anyway, that's some of the work that I'm doing um, with Cox. Love it. Yeah. It's incredible stuff. Um, goals for this year uh, and maybe even the next five, you, you've got to um, – you're obviously doing a lot of great stuff with the, with the foundation still, you know, speaking to students and whatnot. Is there anything you want to accomplish this year? And, you know, maybe, maybe looking out to the next five as well. Yeah. I would love to publish two books this year. Um, a picture book and the young adult book. I would love to, I would love for my my foundation to have a bigger international presence and even a, a big old national presence as well. I would love to expand our programs into uh, thousands and thousands of students. Um, last year, we reached over 200,000 students with our programs. I'd love to do half a million this year. And we're in a good sp uh, spot. We're at 200 now. So got a little ways to go. Um, I think I'll, personally, I want to continue to learn. You know, I'm, I'm still a young and new father, so understanding how to be a dad and the roles and responsibilities that come along with that. I'm a new husband, so that comes along with its own boil boy. Are you are you too married? <laughs> we are not. No. Hey, hold off on it. <laughs> we'll tell the we'll tell the missuses to not listen to this episode of Beers Business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, know. I tell her all the time. I did hold off. I did. I'm 29 when I did. I held off. Now, um. I love her more than anything. I want to take it back, but it's a lot of responsibility. You know what I'm saying? So make sure you're ready for that. And uh, um, that's it. <laughs> a pretty big list. That's a pretty that big, big list. list. <laughs> not too bad. Not too bad. So as we close out the show, you know, we always like to ask people for, you know, their words of wisdom and you sprinkled it throughout their entire conversation, but you had to stop something you love because of injuries. You made the most of it. You created a new opportunity for yourself. Um, you created something that you truly never would have imagined. So what advice would you give to someone who might be in a similar position that you were at one point in your career? And, you know, how do they get to where you are today? First, understand that you're, you're capable. And that if you're able to rise in one area, you can rise in another. You have to take the same principles that got you where you wanted to be and use those repeatedly over time to get you to your next destination in life. You do not have to be the smartest. You don't have to be the most athletic. You don't have to have some superpower that people can acknowledge. All you have to have is effort and desire. And if you have those two things, I don't care what the circumstance is, you can get where you want to be. I am a man of faith, and I believe my faith has allowed me to sustain some psychological battles that I don't think I would have been able to get through alone. So I'll also say find something that's greater than you. I'm not telling you what to believe in. I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you anything. I'm just giving advice. Find something to believe in that's much greater than yourself that you can rely on in difficult times. Because one thing I can guarantee you is difficult times will come. And you find that thing and you lean on it and you never give up. If you're, 
if you have effort, if you have desire, you have faith, I am telling you those three things will take you far and they don't cost a single dollar. Those things are free. You just have to do the personal work to acquire them. And if you do, nothing will stop you. You'll be truly unstoppable. That is a fantastic message to close things out. Uh, Malcolm, can't thank you enough for spending the time with us today. Um, where can listeners find more about your foundation? Where can they keep up with the things that you're doing? And how can they get involved with some of the things you're doing too? You can find me on all social platforms at Read with Malcolm. And that's Malcolm with two L's, M-A-L-C-O-L-M, Read with Malcolm. And you can also go to my website, www.readwithmalcolm.com to learn more about the foundation and the work that we're doing in communities. And if you ever have any thoughts, questions, just reach out. Um, I'm not that difficult to find. <laughs> well, we appreciate you sharing your message, sharing your story and, uh, you know, giving us an awesome conversation. So good luck with everything. We'll be obviously rooting along and hopefully we'll get to uh, stop by a high school soon and uh, check out what this magic's all about. I appreciate that. Tell John I said, what's up? And that was just Malcolm Mitchell, Super Bowl champion, and of course, the founder of Share the Magic Foundation. Uh, we appreciate John Logan for helping us get Malcolm on, and we appreciate Malcolm for coming on the show. I mean, this was a great conversation. So check out his foundation, check out the website, buy the books, and, uh, you know, we we do definitely appreciate having him on. So before we get to our ball segment, we are brought, bringing you a message from our sponsor, DraftKings. So get on the NBA action with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. New customers can make a $5 pregame Moneyline bet and score $150 in bonus bets if their team wins. This is everywhere DraftKings is available now, by the way, not just Massachusetts. Yeah. So download the app now and sign up with the code BBB. That's code BBB only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in Massachusetts. Call 1-800-327-5050 or visiting, visiting helpline.ma.org. In New York, call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In Kansas, call 1-800-522-4077 on behalf of Boot Hill Casino Resort, 21 plus in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details and st state-specific responsible gambling resources. Fucking new one. <laughs> hey, we'll pit you now. against Mike Gilligan, who did a good job with that read he did a good job with that read but you you had it in the bag unquestionable you got close this is one that stumps me up but i know no um, matter no matter because we got nba playoffs we got nhl playoffs we got the daily juice we got everything so DraftKings sportsbook use code bbb and uh let's make it happen let's win some bets um a lot of you folks had asked the small state big takes listeners as well if this code works in other other states and mike gilligan's response was give it a try right this promo works everywhere where DraftKings is available so if you're like screw it i want to watch some nba go put in the bbb code go get some money go get some money man uh speaking of the nba play-in tournament 
Uh, Raptors are out. Bulls are in. As we're recording, Oklahoma City's up by four against the Pelicans. And the bracket's set. Um, I'll tell you what. Another small state big takes reference. The Sacramento Kings might be someone you just sprinkle a little cheddar on to to make things a little fun. I personally have not really watched a minute of the NBA this year. I watched a couple Celtics games. I went to a Celtics game to go see Friar legend Chris Dunn drop 14 points and get ejected. That was fun. But I don't know. This is the time of year now where it's like, oh shit, what? who is like good and what do I do? So you've been watching the Knicks all year. Can you give us the primer on who's good in the NBA? Yeah, the Knicks are, you know, for an underdog for this Cleveland series, I think the Knicks are wildly underrated. And I'm not just saying that as a fan. You get Jalen Brunson and, and Julius Randle going. I mean, they already beat the Cavs three times this season. The only time that they lost, Evan Fournier was the starter in like November. This is a very talented and deep squad where Julius Randle, RJ Barrett, and um Jalen Brunson were sitting out the past couple games because they were resting up for the playoffs you have Obi Toppin Emmanuel Quickly and Quentin Grimes dropping 30 apiece a night this that, team- was, that was odd to me where I saw Emmanuel Quickly had like a 40 point game the other day it's cr- like the team is so deep and so young that I think the Cavs are wildly overrated um in terms of the rest of the NBA I mean Obviously, you, you cannot, you know, sleep on the Bucks, Celtics, and six Celtics and 76ers. They all have MP, MVP talents. Um, they're at the top of the table for the reason. In the West, I mean, I, I think I I want to say it's the Nuggets conference to lose. Um, you know, the Grizzlies are a talented team. The Kings get that three seed. But I think the Kings at the three seed are at a disadvantage because they got to play the Warriors. You know, and yeah, the Warriors, <laughs> the Warriors are a six seed, but, you know, they have the most playoff experience in the entire league. So, yeah, I- like the, that's one of those that you look at the Warriors every year. And you're like, OK, what seed did they end up? Because this doesn't matter. Yeah. Like it, it physically does not matter where they are. They're going to get some some hefty looks from people. Yeah. And I mean, like, I honestly could see the West as like a Warriors Suns matchup because it's like, how can you count out Kevin Durant, Devin Booker and Chris Paul, you know, even with a lighter bench as than normally, um, you know, you have Kevin Durant again, he's a two-time champion and he's been to the finals four times. Um, The Suns were in it at one point as, or no, no. Yeah, they were, they lost just recently lost to the Bucks. So yeah. You know, I th- it, it, it could be anybody's game, but if there's one bet that I can guarantee, it's Knicks beating the Cavs, and they're wildly undervalued right now. The last time you guaranteed a play, you won it. You know, Do you remember what that was? Because I do. We don't throw the word guarantee out with, with sports wagering on this show because bet at your own risk. What was it? It was the Giants to beat the Vikings in the first round. Oh, yes. Yes. So I kind of looked at you like, eh, I don't know. If I'm putting a guarantee, it's it's Knicks winning this series. And I think they win it in six or less. Wow. Yeah, very, 
Very interesting with the New York Knicks. Um, so how does it, it, did they play, did, does it reseed or do they go, like, will they go have to play the Bucks versus whoever, it, it'll be the Bulls in this scenario? Like, is that what they're going to have to do after or do they go play like or some shit? I don't think it is, it's reseeded. I don't think so. So they're probably going to have to play Milwaukee first round or excuse me, second round. Unless Milwaukee loses. I think Milwaukee's going to lose the Bulls. Never know. Never know. They do. Uh, Bulls lost both games they played. One by 12 and one by... Oh, well, they did beat the Bucks earlier in the year by six. Uh, and they also beat him by five. Yeah, you never know what these seven-game series, right? Um, I, I don't think there's like a clear-cut favorite. Like, again, we're, we haven't even talked about LeBron and the Lakers yet. Well, I was going to say, that was going to be my next point. Like, I think you're, you'd be foolish to count out the Lakers, too. It's, you know, this is the first time ever LeBron's been an underdog in the first round of the playoffs. Yeah, because they – the other times he just would have missed it, right? Because I think – when did they the Lakers miss the playoffs a couple years ago or last year? No, just saying in his entire career, in the first round of the playoffs, that first game series, this is the first time he's ever been an underdog. That the 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 point – the they are plus – Oh, money, like, yeah, yeah. Plus money to win the series. Yeah. Which is kind of nuts because the Lakers are higher in the standings. And they have to play the Minnesota Timberwolves, who are like, they are a mess right now. They beat with Colbert they and beat with all this crap. The Lakers already did that. Wait, did they beat them? Yeah. Oh shit. I'm I'm a tick behind here. That they they beat them oh. in overtime in the play-in game. That's what it was. Okay. Um, wow, that was Tuesday night. I'm I'm two steps behind the NBA here. Yeah, they already beat them in the play-in game, and that was kind of like, you know, everyone was laughing at the Rudy Gobert trade. And, you know, when you have to trade so many pieces and, and picks for a talent like that, anytime it doesn't go into your favor, it's going to blow up in your face. And when he gets suspended for punching his guy, one of his teammates – you know own teammate that's embarrassing yeah and again like it's a man's game and and things get heated in the moment you know that's something you you handle internally in the locker room but it just you know that if they have played what they have won maybe maybe yeah i i i think he i think they probably would have yeah to be totally honest um this yeah this is another one where it's like i With the Grizzlies now moving on, or excuse me, the Lakers moving on to play the Grizzlies, I want to get on Memphis's train, but I don't know if I can. Like, I like a lot of Memphis's guys. I liked Morant before this this year's crap went down. I don't condone, obviously, any of what he did. But I liked the way he played. I like Desmond Bain, actually. Like, I... Hate to, I liked him at TCU. I like him now. And he's got what 20 almost 22 points a game. I think Dylan Brooks is good. Everybody calls him overrated, whatever. 
Um, I think they have a very deep bench as well. So this could be this could be some uh, an interesting run if the the Grizzlies can kind of pull together, string together a few wins, and uh, take care of business against the Lakers, get a little momentum. Yeah, like I said, it, it could go any way. I don't think there's a clear cut favorite. Um, you know, in the beginning of the year, you could have said that was the Celtics, but they've definitely have uh, you know slowed down and, and came back to reality a little bit, but. It's just like hockey. These these it's it's seven game series. They're so long. Hockey, baseball. You just have no idea. You have no idea. And the playoffs start now and don't until like June. So we got a lot of time to to talk shop on that. Oh yeah. I think the what I love about Sacramento too is the is the fact that they probably have the most successful Gonzaga alum of the last five years in the NBA in Sabonis. He has 31 points a game. Yeah, and, and I can't yeah. name you a better Gonzaga alum. Like, who else is active? Like, Kelly Olenek? That's, that's really it, no? And Well, Suggs, some of the new guys. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was Gonzaga before Gonzaga was cool. It's true. Well, not, that not that yeah i was gonna say um he was he he obviously gets that gets that yeah i mean they have a lot of guys that are in the league now like rui hachimura Corey kispert's doing pretty well with washington that i mean brandon clark zach collins andrew nemhard and suggs uh Sabanis is the clear-cut guy that it's like yeah he's He's the creme. He's the cream of the crop. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it'll be a conversation down the road if Drew Timmy ever gets his shot, and can he translate to that type of player? Because I mean, I guess if you, a lot of people say no, he can't. <laughs> I was gonna say like, you line them up, they kind of have similar games, but. I just can't see I could like and I, I don't know if it's just bias because Sabonis has been in the league for a while. I, I just think he would run over Drew Timmy. Oh, definitely. Drew Timmy just looks too big for his body. He sucks. UConn <laughs> <I mean, laughs> pushed him around. To a freaking Adam Sonogo is like a man. That's a boy against a man, and Drew Timmy's no small chump. Yeah. I know. Well, I, I think from a wagering perspective, I'll sprinkle a little bit on uh, on Sacramento. I, I love the way the Celtics are playing too. Brown's pissed now. He's he's trying to prove something. He's tired of being in the shadows. The Tatum. I think the story for Boston gets pretty good here. Um, I I just don't. I think Boston can beat Milwaukee in a seven game series. Like you put them against it right now. I think I'm taking the Celtics there. I also just don't think the Celtics are that good. I know that's going to be an alarming hot take, but that's a rather hot take. It's yeah. just, like oh. they're a talented team, but I just can't, you know. And I don't know if it's just old school bias with like other teams and stuff. I just, I think Tatum has to do too much. The the team, I, I, I think some the, the team's constructed weird. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's just kind of a bunch of guys that like on paper don't really fit like if you told me if you asked me to choose where in the standings the celtics would end up with this roster 
uh, of Blake Griffin, Malcolm Brogdon, Al Horford after a couple stints not working out places. And then like Sam Hauser and Mike Muscala. Yeah, like it might be an ignorant ignorant take because like I haven't followed a lot of Celtic. Well, I mean, I've I've watched a decent amount of Celtics basketball, but you know, I I just cannot see this team get over the hump. And yeah, they made it to the championship last year. They just felt like a more gel together, gelled together compelling team where it's like, yeah, they can win the championship. This year, I don't know if it's just because it's a a muddied landscape with who's good, who's not. I just, I, I, I can see them not make, I can see them like their ceiling is Eastern conference final. And listen, there's a world where that happens. Right. But I think they're just playing too well. Like they have, they have so many misfits. And I love those teams that just look like misfits. That was like Charleston to me this year. They just were guys that were like, they rode the pine on other programs or they transferred in from D2 or whatever. And it kind of reminds me of what the Celtics have going on. I mean, like Malcolm Brogdon's got 17 points a fucking game. Are you kidding me? Derek White, 15. Horford's getting 16 points a game too right now. That's the most shocking to me. And who knows if, you know, who knows what condition he's going to come in. He's been sitting out every now and then. Peyton Pritchard's shooting well. I thought they were going to trade him, but they never end up doing it. I, I, I think this team plays good basketball and they just needed a little fire under their ass with a new coach. And I think they got it. So if only he learns how to fucking call timeout at the right places, instead <laughs> of letting his guys get gassed, then this team has a good shot. Anybody's game. Anybody's like, game. If they end up playing the box, I think they've got it in the bag. I really do. Now West in the Western conference, like who they play, that's another story, right? If they play Denver, they play, Memphis and they're rolling. I that could get ugly. But that's that's the takeover here. It's talking basketball. It's basketball. Uh NHL playoffs are about to start. Congratulations to your Islanders. Uh seven or eight seed sneaking in there. Islanders are back and they'll make the upset too. They'll either go to Boston or they will go to Carolina. And I don't know who you'd rather face, but I think for both or for, excuse me, for New York, I'd much rather play Carolina, right? I now. mean, obviously you much rather play Carolina, but you know, the Islanders also have had a history of knocking out the Bruins in the playoffs in, in recent time. It's true. I'm, I'm a bit terrified there. Um, the NHL's, an interesting landscape now. I, You know what I'm really excited for is Devils Rangers. Because a lot of shit talkers are going to be shut up either way. A lot of Devils fans coming out of the woodwork this year. For, shout out Frank the Tank. He stuck with them. He stuck with the Devils last year, even though he was slandering them. He, goes, they, he listed out the changes they needed to make, and they did. And... Now the Devils and Rangers are going to battle it out in seven games for New York Metro area supremacy. That's a pretty yeah. good storyline. I mean, the, the narrative nation there is like you got the Hughes brothers, but obviously for the Rangers, I mean, they went balls to the wall with, you know, their acquisitions. And, you know, you, you bring a guy like Patty Kane over and all the other moves that they made, like you, you have to make the cup this year. 
I know it's cup or bust for them, but I there's just too many good teams in the way right now. I uh, see, like, they'll yeah, probably beat the Devils. That's what I think. They'll probably beat, yeah, they'll probably beat the Devils. And you know, if you're looking at the 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 playoff landscape here, I mean, I think the East. Wait, actually, why do we have an update on the Panther score? Not yet. They play tomorrow. Okay, because if Panthers lose, then yeah, it'll be the Hurricanes. Um, yeah, basically, Panthers win. Whoever, if the Panthers win, they get the seventh seed. Yeah. If they do anything else, the Islanders get the seventh seed. Like, if you look at the East, obviously, Bruins, you know, you the Rangers, you, you can never count out the Lightning. Um, <laughs> you can definitely count out the Leafs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I honestly think like the Leafs and the Devils are the weakest links, even though obviously they've had very good seasons this year. I think everyone else could make some type of run. In the West, though, it's it's your top four teams, and that's it. Yeah, the West is the West is a real weird one because I don't know. Do you think part of me thinks like okay, it's gonna be Colorado waiting for whoever battle like comes out of a bloody East. You know, I mean, you know, there's talk of, you know, is it written in the stars for Edmonton now? Is it, is it only fate that the Dallas stars who had a, a career year from Jason Robertson um, or a guy like Matt Bowlby in the Minnesota wild, you know, trying to avenge Colorado. I think there's a lot of different ways the West could play out. The West could play out a lot. I mean, we can't, we cannot discredit the Golden Knights, and you know, it it is paying off that Eichel is now performing to this capability, and and it has made the playoffs, and can you know avenge his his sad time. the Buffalo Sabers, yeah, sad time as a Saber, right? But you know, they they have some question marks there. I, I think like the biggest, the, like you know, it'd be cool if the Avalanche repeat. They're a very talented squad, but Edmonton, I mean, you need to get to a point where when is, when, when are you going to get over the hump? Yeah. And we, I think anything... we, mentioned, we mentioned Gonzaga for like the NBA, but yeah. I think the same thing with Mark Few and Gonzaga. It's like, when will you get over this hump? Now, listen, if they get there, it's progress, right? Like if it's Edmonton versus Boston, or if it's Edmonton versus Tampa, or if it's Edmonton versus one of the New York teams, in the cup, I think that's progress because then you get McDavid sort of bought in. You get more guys that are saying, okay, I'm going to go play with this motherfucker. Like it's bought in, but you know, and at least for Edmonton, they make the playoffs, but it's starting to become like an angel situation where you have two amazing talents in, in um, Connor McDavid and, and Leon Dreisaitl, where it's like, is this the Trout and Otani of hockey? I, I see what you're after, but like the Edmonton, if Edmonton sucked, that would, that would make sense. No, I know. Like, that's like, okay. So who would be a comparison? Um, No, like, um, football. No, because he, you know, McDavid is like Josh Allen is no McDavid. Um, Well, Hey, do you Josh Allen and Diggs? 
Is that the closest we can get with a sport? I don't know. There's got to be better. No, because like McDavid literally, McDavid is the Mike Trout of hockey. Yeah, but I, I see what you're after. It's like, when does, honestly, when does he get pissed, right? Like, when do the fans start saying like, fuck, we are wasting these years with the best player maybe to ever play the game. And we have a couple of banners to show for it and no cup, no no conference titles, nothing. Like when does that point happen if it's not in the next year or two? And I, I fully support that take, but there's a lot of other stuff written in the stars in the West right now. You know, Colorado's looking they they look if Kale McCart's healthy, they look like they can repeat and they get Landeskog back, hopefully. Um, you know, selfishly, I hope the I, I think the Bruins are a team of destiny too. I think they have had a fantastic year. I think there's just so much going right. There's a lot of headwinds. They made a coaching change. What a story Jim Montgomery is, too. You know, he came back from the alcoholic uh, you know, the the scenario with uh alcohol abuse. And, you know, he turned his life around a couple of years ago, um, became a better man, person and coach from it. He gets another shot in Boston. Guys come back on on very team-friendly deals, which you don't see a ton. I guess you see it more in hockey than any other sport, but there's a lot of shit going right. And they're going for win number 64 on Thursday night. And I know a lot of New York hockey people are going to say, well, first round exit. It's going to be fun. The playoffs are going to be real fun. And this will be my first hockey playoffs that I've really ever, like, had my ear to the ground to. Right? Like, I'm invested in every single one of these matchups and how they play out. And I couldn't say that in years past. A lot of good hockey to be watched. A lot of good hockey to be watched. There is. That's all. Um, when did the NBA playoffs start? Saturday? Saturday. I might have to sprinkle some on the Knicks to win that series. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just it's funny. I I I watch a decent amount of basketball, but I don't partake in a lot of basketball Twitter because that's that's a wild west. And yeah, oh, they're crazy on basketball that Twitter. Cavs Twitter is just ugh. Um, how about the Rays too? Are they ever going to lose again? They're twelve and zero. Oh, don't I don't want to get into this Rays bullshit because, listen, congrats to the Rays. You know they have a weird roster and they always just pull out these wins and they're well coached. Even though Cash Meyer's a dick, blah 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 blah. Um, <laughs> did you say Cash Meyer? You, yeah, I yeah. like that Cash Meyer. You combine Kevin Kiermeyer and, Kevin, and Cash. Kevin Cash. Yeah, too many cases. Like too many oh. cases. Either way, they're both dicks. Where's um, Kiermaier now? Is he in the? Uh, he's in Toronto. Yeah, that sucks. I hate him even more for that. But okay, you're twelve and zero against the four teams that were last place in their respective divisions. Like, have a cakewalk of a start of a season, and like, don't tell me, oh yeah, well teams improved, blah 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 blah. The Oakland A's are running out a minor league team. Oh, their schedule was so. I'm looking at it. Now. The Nationals are a minor league team. There is nobody on those two teams that will sniff any meaningful baseball anytime soon. 
the Detroit Tigers are a retirement home and have guys that were once names that are now nothing. And the Boston Red Sox are literally held by duct tape, even with all of the moves that they made with extending Raphael Devers and adding pieces and all of that stuff. These are four bad teams and the Rays are a semi-solid team. I would very much rather take what the Yankees have right now at seven and four and they beat the San Francisco Giants, who two seasons ago were a 100-win team and still have some talent. The Phillies, who were in the World Series. The um, Cleveland Guardians, who were a playoff team. And who was the other series that they had? Uh, but did you say Baltimore already? And Baltimore, who, again, was right on the tails for the AL East last year. Yeah, they, they turned it around. Um, I This... Tigers roster is it's kind of sad I just looked at it that really like their best guy who's who's the best average right now it's Matt Verling who the fuck is that Matt Verling right fielder no idea Avi Baez 111 average I meant to drop him crazy shit all right, uh, that's the show. Uh, playoff season. Let's go. Head over to DraftKings, BBB. So long, everybody. Take it easy. Take it easy.